Well, brothers and sisters, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. This morning, we're going to look at the parable of the two sons given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his aggressors, those challenging him. And before I read the text and open up that portion of this blessed scripture, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, Father, we come to your most holy and precious word, a word that is a light unto our path, Lord, a lamp unto our feet. It shows us the way. It shows us, O Lord, how to see the world that we live in, how to see ourselves, how you see us. Lord, we pray that this morning we would look into this most perfect law, and Lord, we would not forget what we see. Lord, that we would be judged by this infallible word, that you would come, O Lord, and minister to our hearts, that you would take it and apply it to us, O Lord, and we would examine ourselves, and that we would turn and flee to our blessed Savior, Lord, in every failure that we find, that we would not rest in ourselves, we would not trust in our own strength, our own know-how, our own knowledge, but that we would grasp and cling by faith to Christ. Now pray, O Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has been trusting in themselves today, under the preaching of this word, they would fall into great conviction And before this worship is even over, they would flee to you in spirit and cry out, O Lord, in repentance of sin for salvation in Christ. Now come and bless your name and bless us, Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 21. Hear the word of the living God. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. And afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This confrontation comes toward the end of what we know as the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very possible that When Jesus uttered these words, he was just 24 hours or so away from being crucified. 
to study the text and to study that week is to come to the realization that it was a very, very busy week for our Lord and Savior. Something that we, or at least a statement that we use often to describe our own lives. But this was no doubt a terribly busy week for the Lord Jesus Christ. Since arriving in Jerusalem on that Saturday before this confrontation, he has been engaged in one lecture, one sermon, one meeting, one confrontation after another. And this one is no different. This is a confrontation. It's given in the typical Jewish way. They come to Christ before in verses 23 through 27, and they are appalled. They are offended at how the Lord has cleansed the temple, how he has quoted from the Old Testament scriptures applying the word of God to himself as being the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel, having come unto his people and having cleansed the worship of the living and true God. They're offended and they come to him and they want to challenge the authority that he is exhibiting by taking on these responsibilities to himself. And that's the question they ask. If you look there at verse 23, and Jesus, that is, he entered the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And it's a serious matter. These chief priests and elders would be likened not just to uh, the religious leaders of the day, but political figures of the day. Those who are trying to manage and maintain what they had built and established with their own hands, not the hands of Almighty God, mind you, but their own hands. They were protecting their own interests. And so they come to Jesus and they want to challenge him. And they do so by asking him this question. And of course, Jesus is having none of it. Jesus had already taught his disciples, don't throw pearls to swine. And these were swine. These were swine, and I'm going to open up in just a little bit on what made them so offensive in the nostrils of Almighty God. And something that we should look at and judge ourselves and to make sure that we're not guilty of similar or the same sin. And yet Jesus seems to entertain them to a small degree, though not in every way, because he tells them at the very beginning, or he tells them that he's not going to answer their question unless he, they answer his question. 
In verse 27, he says, and answering Jesus, they said, well, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, Jesus is not playing their game. He's serious. These are serious matters. Brothers and sisters, religion is a serious matter. How we conduct ourselves in our holy faith is a serious matter. It's a matter that is directly connected to the living and true God and the sin that Jesus is highlighting in his illustration by the parable I just read in your hearing is the sin of this self-righteous hypocrisy. Now, before I work through the text and context and address those markers of this hypocrisy so that we can look at our own hearts by them. I want to say a little bit about this sin. This sin is not something you catch by hanging out in groups. You're born with it. You're born with this root of hypocrisy. You were born with it and I was born with it. They were born with it. It's a sin that is eager to express itself when the time is right. When there is a need to present ourselves as being something we are not. That Hypocrisy loves to rise to the occasion and present itself. It loves to deceive, mislead. It loves to give the appearance of virtue when virtue doesn't really and truly exist in one's own heart. What makes this sin so grievous is that these religious leaders were quite professional at being self-righteous and hypocritical. They were masters of concealment. They were masters of, of of the deception are the appearance of religion and virtue and morality, but never uh, possessing that genuine re- character that had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They loved to give the appearance of religion, but never possessing the true power of it. They just were not the real thing. And because they were in a place of of great accountability, uh, because they they sat in the seat, as it were, of those that would lead others to God and represent God to others and judge matters, spiritual matters, and important matters, they were in violation of the third commandment. They were guilty 
of sacrilege. Taking that which is wholesome, holy, and good, and perverting it by their hypocrisy. And Jesus is having none of their games. This is a confrontation in the, in, in, in the extreme sense of the word confrontation. Obviously, or at least not maybe not so obvious from this immediate text, but when we read the broader context of the next few chapters, we see this leads to Jesus' arrest. Just like Jesus is having none of their games, they're having no more of Jesus. This usurper, this one who has caused in and created havoc, the one who has challenged us, the one who has put us to shame. And just like Jesus did in this confrontation, as he has done in all the other confrontations, he put these men to shame because they did not possess the truth. Let's look at the parable itself to see how Jesus takes this confrontation on and then I'm going to examine this sin of hypocrisy from the text and bring out nine areas that we can examine in our own lives to see if this sin might be uh, present manifesting itself in us. Notice what Jesus says in verse 28 when he says, but what do you think? Now, in Hebrew fashion, they've asked Jesus a question. He's not going to answer their question, but now he poses them a question. This is how the Hebrew debated one another. And so he brings this parable out as an illustration of the point of their hypocrisy. And this is what he says, a man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered being the son, I will not. Very abrasive, very, very offensive how that first son answers his father. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. The second man, the man comes in verse 30 to the second son. And he said the same thing to him. And the second son answered, what? I will, sir. Very polite. And he did not go. Now notice what Jesus does here in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. They understood what Jesus was saying to them. This wasn't some broad parable Jesus was using about the kingdom of heaven in order to bring light to the kingdom of heaven. This parable is an illustration about who's in the kingdom of heaven or who's actually going to get into the kingdom of heaven. And he's confronting his aggressors. And he does it in a way that they see it. Now, beloved, because the parable 
obviously highlights the hypocrisy of the second son. Yes, sir, I will go. I mean, how polite compared to the first son. And yet had no intention of going and working and laboring in his father's vineyard. In verse 31, notice that Jesus uses this, the way Jesus couches this is almost reminiscent of Matthew 19 about how difficult it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom because of all of their wealth, because of all of their material goods. It's, It's hard for them to put it aside, to put it away, to die to themselves. That's illustrated or at least in that interchange with the rich young ruler. But look at verse 31. He says, which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. What are you saying is this? It's easier for tax collectors and prostitutes to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a hypocrite, a self-righteous hypocrite. They go first. It is very difficult, particularly These hypocrites here that are engaging with Christ, challenging his authority, those religious leaders that had such, uh, if you will, stock in their labors and works into their, their positions and office. That's telling, isn't it? That there are some in this life that have great difficulty entering into the kingdom of heaven. That there are some in this life that have great difficulty recognizing their sin, repenting of their sin, turning from their sin, and following after Christ. There are some in this life that find it easier to do than others. And you would think, I mean, this, 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 these people, these sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, I mean, that was, that was notorious sinners in the mind of a Hebrew. I mean, how offensive. How dirty. How unclean. They are. And Jesus, remember, already had another confrontation with them sometime back when he had to deal with them. What really makes a person clean or unclean? Remember, they had their ritual where they would wash the cups and the pots, and so they wanted to make sure it was all very clean because they didn't want to touch anything dirty and thus pollute their person. And Jesus said, you you, see, you don't really understand the Scripture. 
You really don't understand human nature because it's not what goes into the body that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of the body that makes a person unclean. And that hypocrisy, as I've already mentioned, brothers and sisters, is embedded in us by our sin nature. We come into this world free to lie, cheat, and steal, and deceive. And some learn to manage that, and some don't. Others, by God's sovereign grace, are saved. And then Christ comes to mortify those sins in their lives, and and they continue a life of mortification and sanctification, putting to death those gnarly, nasty sins that are always ready to spring up and defile many. Brothers and sisters, hypocrisy, this self-righteous hypocrisy has been the Achilles heel of Christianity since this time. It's the it's it's the death nail to true virtue, to growth, personal growth and church growth, community growth. I, I mean, look at what we are experiencing politically and the hypocrisy, and look at the effect that is having culturally on the nation. And so it doesn't matter where that hypocrisy and that self-righteousness is exhibited, in this case, religious. In our case, we are practicing this religious. We want to make sure that we are right before God. His spirit is truly filling us, that we're not deceived ourselves, and we're certainly not deceiving others about who we really are, that we want everyone to see and to recognize God powerfully working in each of our lives so that we can give him all the glory. Amen. We want that. We want people to see that. We want people to recognize that. We want, like the Apostle Paul said, I prayed, I asked the Lord to remove from my flesh this stigma, but he would not because the Lord saw fit that I would be a vessel of his mercy, that God wanted to exalt in my weaknesses his power. And God wants each of us to do the same thing. He wants to exhibit in us that power, that holiness, that virtue, that character that does not come from within us. It comes to us by the Holy Spirit working in us and with us to change our lives for God's glory. That's what Ephesians 2 is about, is that trophies of grace those trophies of grace, those sovereign grace trophies. That's all who have put their trust in him. This is a terrible sin. And it's one that we should take note of from the text, the opportunity to examine ourselves and, and 
brothers and sisters, the opportunity to put that to death if we even see just a small part of this sin raising its nasty, ugly head. So let's look at these markers that I have come up with from the text in order to help us examine ourselves. The first one is this opposition to true religion. Opposition to true religion. Now, I mean, it's obvious from the text, right? It's obvious in verse 23, he entered the temple. The chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? This is a confrontation. This is not a pleasant conversation. This is aggressive. This is forceful. It's, it's, it's these scribes taking Jesus up by the scruff of the collar, if you will, and say, hey, man, why are you doing this? And who told you you could do this? And this hypocrisy seeks to protect itself. And true religion and the power of the Holy Spirit and the right understanding of the Bible is an enemy to self-righteous hypocrisy. And so it seeks to protect itself. It seeks to attack anything that would harm it, that would put it to death. Jesus was dangerous to these men. They knew they could not maintain and hold on to their facade if he continued to have his way. Now, brothers and sisters, what I mean in this application to this opposition to true religion is that it can happen in our lives every Sunday. You can be an opposer of true religion and be a professor of Christ, come and be baptized, partake of the Lord's Supper, yet when you hear certain messages and when you see certain texts of Scripture, I don't want to listen to that. I don't want anything to do with that. I, mean, I don't like that book of the Bible. I don't like Paul. I like Peter. I like John, the apostle of love. And we can oppose true religion by the things we don't give our ear to and our hearts to. And brothers and sisters, we have to face the true music. The Word of God examines us. We are not the judge of God nor the judge of His Word. It comes to judge us. It comes to lay us open Right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and following. It comes to us. It comes as that sharp two-edged sword, doesn't it? And it comes to lay out our intentions and our motivations. It comes to bring light to the dark areas of our lives. And yet, we must be so careful that we do not like these scribes and Pharisees, or not Pharisees, but these elders, oppose true religion. The second marker to look out for when it comes to this self-righteous hypocrisy 
is a pos- to possess an ignorance of the scriptures, to be ignorant of the scriptures. Now, none of us know all of scripture. You know, none of us study our Bibles to the extent that we know what's on every page. We know intimately every prophet, every book, and all these doctrines. And if we did say that was true yesterday, Saturday, we spent all day memorizing the whole Bible, how much of it would we forget today? Because our minds are fragile, all all under the effect of the fall and the the degeneration of the flesh, the mind, the heart, the thinking process, the memory. We are all under the law of aging and that has an effect upon us. But to possess this ignorance of Scripture in this case is this willful ignorance. It's it's this rejection of certain doctrines and the keeping of other doctrines. We don't want to know that. And that's why you have the first of the chapter. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to the Mount of Olives. He tells them to go get the colt of a foal. Verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I mean, this is a lot's going on in this context. The king is arrived to his people and to the holy city. They're witnessing all of these things. Jesus has picked up. He has cleansed the temple. He has rebuked them, and he's rebuked them and told them that they have turned the worship of God, the place where God is to meet with his people, into a den of thieves or robbers. Willful ignorance of Scripture. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew highlights that saying of Jesus more than the other gospel writers. Matthew seems to want to bring that to the attention of the the Jews that he wrote this gospel to. Matthew is the Jewish gospel of the four. And so he, 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 again, brothers and sisters, this willful ignorance of Scripture has to be remedied This kind of ignorance, brothers and sisters, easily fosters self-righteous hypocrisy because you're no longer being cleansed, as it were, by the whole counsel of God's word. You have erected your own standard of morality and righteousness, and you're presenting yourself as something that you're not. Thirdly, as I've already mentioned, to be careful of sacrilege. Sacrilege. Sacrilege is the violation of holy things. Things that are intended to be a means of grace 
are violated, abused, and polluted by one's hypocrisy. You can see right here in verse 12, as I've mentioned, they have taken the, uh, where Jesus comes in verse 12, he says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, that is in the word, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Even our confession of faith, addressing the third commandment and the fourth commandment, talks about things that ought not be done on the Lord's day or even in worship. Why? Because it's a solemn time and a solemn place. There is something Today, just as in Jesus' day, something very holy about the meeting and the gathering of God's people. Where our Lord comes to walk in our midst in a very powerful spiritual way. His presence is here. And we should guard our thinking. We should guard our hearts. We should guard our conversations. And we should. Because it's a solemn time. It's for solemn purposes. It's for the purpose of us meeting with our God and celebrating His God, His godly, His, His grace, His power, His sovereignty, His salvation. He comes to, to give us rest. He comes to give us peace. He comes to excite our faith. He comes to fill us with hope. That's just, those are good things. And that happens when we worship him in spirit and truth. Why do you think, beloved, we should abhor the taking of God's name in vain? That we take something that is holy and make it so common and less than even common. We don't take one another's name and add profanity to it. But we don't, and I say we, I mean collectively, culturally, don't have a problem taking God's holy name. And he says, my name is holy. And use it in a very vulgar way. That is sinful. And it's even an aggravated sin. It's even a sin that, that, that is highly aggravated in the face of God. As, as this was, that Jesus could take up a, a whip of a cat of nine tails and cleanse the temple and turn the money tables over and run the people off. All in the zeal and the power of the Holy Spirit. He could do it in freedom of conscience because he was in keeping with the holiness of God and the holy place of God. And I know we talk about it's a building and, and there's a place for it. This is just a building. But when there comes a time when we meet with God and his people, beloved, it ought not be common. 
it ought to be different. Don't you agree, my brothers and sisters, that we've lost a sense of sacredness in our culture? Don't you agree with that? Where did that come from? Could it be the hypocrisy of the church has lost the sense of sacredness? Because true and vital sacredness, beloved, is an enemy to hypocrisy. Why? Because we come and we're humbled under something greater than ourselves. We are humbled by him who is greater than all. And we demonstrate that by coming into his presence and laying ourselves out here and saying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to tie it into this, this idea of sacrilege, but I'm going to attach it to this, this, this work of evangelism, okay? Look at verse 15, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. It's hard to evangelize, really, when there is such an offense of hypocrisy present. Because it's all the wrong motivation. And that is really one of my problems with so much of this Christian culture. People seem to be more interested in gaining followers. And that's what the social media does. I mean, social media didn't invent followers. Men have been, been advocating people follow them forever. Be my disciple. Come and follow me. And I'll show you the laws of the universe. I'll unlock the secrets of this world for you. Men have always delighted in being the head and the leader of many others. Social media just capitalized on it. And yet, this idea of creating these followers and having these um, you know, large groups following you and listening to you. Listen, you know, true religion doesn't point anyone to any person other than Christ. That's who you need to follow, Jesus. You need to read his writings. I'm not saying read, not read other books. But you know what? If you're reading other books in, in, in place of Holy Scripture, shame on you. 
Shame on you. Read God's book. I, I, I tell the story, I probably have said this before. If I have, bear with me, I've already said memory is slippery. I was a young Christian and very zealous. Um, I, it was new to me. I hadn't, wasn't raised in a religious home. I mean, we weren't like that. It didn't, you know, we were better than those who went to church because of the hypocrisy. And I remember by God's grace, you know, becoming a Christian and having my mind turned on to reading. I wanted to read the Bible. I just wanted to know what the Bible said. But I wanted to read books, and I wanted to read as, you know, all the good books I could get my hands on. So I go to my pastor, and I'm like, Pastor, I, I, could you recommend any good books for me to read? He said, yes, sir, I sure can. I said, well, what are they? He said, the Bible. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm fired up. I mean, I'm really, I'm a serious Christian. I want to read some good books. Lay them on me. He goes, son, read the Bible. I said, no, you know, again, let me say it again. You got some good books for me to read? He said, son, hear me. Read the Bible, and when you're done, read it again. And when you finish it the second time, read it again and again and again and again. He said, read the Bible. And I think that to this day, that's some of the best advice I've ever received to read the Scriptures. And they read books that help me understand what? The scriptures. The fourth one was that hypocrisy is a hindrance to conversion, true conversion. Because they're not about making disciples of Christ. They're about making disciples of denominations, about leaders, right? They're about making disciples of, of men, not, not of God, not of Christ. And hypocrisy loves to hide behind that veil of spirituality. And it takes often someone very discerning to see it and to address it and to deal with it, which leads to the fifth one. And the fifth one is that hypocrisy, this self-righteousness, and this sin will absolutely secure you a place in hell. Look at verse 13 of chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven off from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. If you want to ensure that on the day you take your last breath and you want to know where you're going, if you want to ensure that you are not going to heaven, that you are not going to spend eternity with, in the presence of Jesus Christ, do not mortify hypocrisy. 
This is a grievous sin in God's sight, and it's polluting, it's contaminating, and it defiles many. Notice they not only shut the kingdom of heaven off to themselves, but they shut it off to others. Why? Because they don't point people to Christ, they point people to themselves. Thus ensuring not only that they go to hell, but that those who follow them, follow them into hell. And that's a serious matter, beloved. This is a serious, serious sin. Number six. It gives the appearance of true religion and worship. Notice in verse 30 of chapter 21, the second son gave the appearance of what? Obedience. I will go. I will go, sir. How polite, how keeping with the fifth commandment, how honoring that appears to be to the father who asked his son to go work in the vineyard. Hypocrisy only gives the facade of obedient religion, obedient faith. He says, I will go, but he does not go. He does not go. There's a conflict between his will and what he says. He wills not to submit. He wills not to obey. He'll say it. He'll say all the right things so that everybody is misled when they hear that son say to the father, oh, yes, sir, I would be glad to go work in your vineyard, father. Thank you for asking. And everybody's like, what a, I wish my son was like that. I wish I had my son like that. But then when he leaves that presence of his father, he doesn't go work. He's a hip, hypocrite. He only is concerned about what he looks like to others. Number seven, look at verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse after, afterwards so as to believe him. Number seven is spiritual blindness. Hypocrisy is a blinding sin. It blinds one to their own need. They can't even see it. These are the same people that, 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 that you know, that argued with John the Baptist. They, you know, they wouldn't even have anything to do with John the Baptist. And he come, what, preaching righteousness and repentance. Spiritual blindness, beloved. They're not concerned about the things of God. A hypocrite is not concerned about the things of God. They're concerned about their thing. Their thing. And let me say this, and I, this is not a direct application at all, but maybe it needs to be said. It's one thing to have topics that we are familiar with and can dis discourse over. Nothing wrong with that. 
but I'm sure that we have met those who only can talk about one thing and only one thing. And the kingdom of God is bigger than one doctrine. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than one pet doctrine. And we must, beloved, have our minds and hearts opened up to the whole counsel of God's word. Number eight, look at verse 45. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, now this is the second parable, we'll look at it next week, but he's including the parable of the two sons. They understood that he was speaking about them. They understood this. And look at verse 46. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Number eight is hypocrisies easily offended. Highly offendable. And it's always personal. Even though Jesus is taking doctrine, he's taking the sound word of God and he's applying it and using it as a prophet should to the hearts and minds of the people, hypocrisy rises up and be, is offended by it. How dare him say that to us? We're a protected class of people. We have to be careful, beloved, that we are not offendable like them. There are offenses. They do come. But not at truth. Not at truth. Not over righteousness. Not over holiness. They seek to get rid of Jesus' teaching and his use of the whole counsel of God's word by getting rid of him. How many churches are guilty of that? The last one, number nine. The sin of self-righteousness, the self-righteous hypocrisy will persecute the righteous. They will persecute the righteous. Look at chapter 27. Again, this is, this is a continuation. This is a long continuation of of the context that these parables find in the last week of Christ's life. And Jesus is before Pilate in this context. And look at verse 20. These are the chief priests and the elders. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. This sin, beloved, is so, so heinous and so polluting and so contaminating. 
and so offensive in God's sight. Their hypocrisy, their spiritual blindness, their hatred for the truth, they work the crowds that when, when Pilate asked, who should I set free? Even by Pilate's own testimony, Jesus was innocent and should have been set free. But because of their hatred and their malice that, that, that sprung from their self-righteous hypocrisy, they incited the crowd to ask for a criminal instead of Christ. Now in God's providence, we know why. Nevertheless, as Peter preached in his sermon, these men were held accountable for this horrific crime. I want to end this morning's message by bringing out and illustrating how dangerous hypocrisy is in the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. He says he persecuted the church. He wanted to put Christians to death. Even Paul admitted his own hypocrisy, his own self-righteousness, his self-worth. So, so much so, Paul stands there. He holds the garments while Stephen, the righteous, is stoned to death. I'm sure beating his chest, going before his own superiors and saying, let me have my way with these so-called Christians and I will see to it that none of them exist when when I'm done with them. He was so filled with his own self-righteousness and his own hypocrisy. How was he converted? How was Paul converted? The road of Damascus. Paul was so blind and so hardened in his own sin of hypocrisy, God spoke to him from heaven and he still didn't really know who he was. Who is this? But God had sovereign mercy upon Saul who became Paul. And he opened his eyes that he would see his own, the gangrene of his soul in hypocrisy couldn't see it before but when Christ opened his eyes that's all he could see this confident man filled with all of these outward gifts that made other men admire him was so unsure of himself he had to go to the backside of the desert for four years so Christ could teach him what the gospel really was That's what happens when we are converted. We're emptied out of ourselves. We realize at that moment, don't we, that how small we are in the universe that God made, but how vitally so important that God would come to each one of his people and call each one by name And even Jesus taught us that the angels in heaven rejoice over one who is converted and saved. Amen. But brothers and sisters, listen. 
Hypocrisy, self-righteousness destroys people. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys countries. And the remedy is repentance. The remedy back in chapter 21 is the son that said, I will not go, but afterward he regretted it and went. What did he do? He repented. He repented of his offense to his father and he turned and he went and his actions then began to to exhibit the fruit of that repentance. I should not have talked to my father that way. Lord, forgive me. I have sinned in thy sight. I am but thy creature. I am the son. You are the father. You have the sovereign right to command me to work in your vineyard and I will go. Now, brothers and sisters, if there's anything we need to go to God with this morning, will you go? Is there any regret? Is there anything that you can confess? Go. And he'll hear you and he'll wash you and make you clean and he will humble you and he will put to death that hypocrisy and that self-righteousness in our lives if we call upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have the power to save. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you can pull down our own hypocrisy. You can pull down our self-righteousness. You can snatch all of that away from us and open our eyes. Lord, that that your arm is strong to save. I pray, O Lord, that we would take heed to this parable and we would examine ourselves. We would examine our church, our body. Lord, where we have been guilty of this sin, forgive us. Lord, cleanse us. And Lord, lead us in the paths of righteousness. Lord, lead us to do great things in your vineyard. Lead us, Lord, to do the work of the vineyard. The the calling, Lord, of your elect, the preaching of the gospel, the evangelizing of the world. Father, we commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen.